Burger King presents Breakfast Stories. Today's story, Marty and the two for $4 croissant. Yeah, I go to Burger King. They got that uh, croissant deal, two for $4. It's wicked good with the sausage, dude. And two for $4? That is a huge bargain. Huge. <laughs> well said, Marty. Tasty, savory, sausage on a flaky croissant. Hey, this is not breakfast. This is a Burger King breakfast. Get two croissant sandwiches now for just $4. Only at Burger King. Price of participation vary. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, folks. It's Chris Daly here, and welcome to a special conversation about everything great happening in Jamaica. It's great to, again, um, talk with our listening audience. And do we have a special treat for you this evening? We have Dr. Deborah A. Thomas, uh, who is an anthropologist, and she'll be giving us, exploring some of her research that she's done in Jamaica. She got her Ph.D. in anthropology from New York University in, in the year 2000 and is currently professor of anthropology and chair of the graduate studies of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also affiliated faculty with the Center of Africana Studies and has a secondary appointment with the Graduate Study of Education. She's a member of the Graduate Groups of Africana Studies and English. Prior to an appointment at Penn, she spent two years as a Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow at the Center of Americas at Wesleyan University and four years teaching in the Department of Cultural Anthropology at Duke University. She is the author of an exceptional violence, embodied citizenship in transnational Jamaica, modern blackness. Nationalism, Globalism, and the Culture and the Politics of Culture in Jamaica, and is co-editor of the Globalization of Race, Transformation in the Cultural Production of Blackness. To conduct the interview, it's my co-host, Denise Maxwell, and she'll be exploring this great work from Dr. Thomas. Take it away, Denise. Well, thanks, Chris. Deborah. Hi, Hi Denise. <laughs> Well, as you know, March is Women's History Month, so we're really honored to have such an outstanding woman of your caliber, a filmmaker, and all the other positive attributes you have to celebrate womanhood. I'm honored to be on with you. (laughs) Tell us a little about your cultural roots. You know, where do you hail from? Well, I I grew up all over. My father is Jamaican. My mother is American from Wisconsin. And uh, we lived in Jamaica for several years during my early childhood, and other than that, mostly grew up in different parts of the U.S. Um, I live in Philadelphia now, which is where I teach at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, but spent, you know, many, many years in New York, uh, in Brooklyn. Um, went to high school. My parents are still in Minneapolis, so I'm, I'm sort of one of these people from all over. Mm, I see. Your book, Exceptional Violence, Embodied Citizenship and Transformational Jamaica, this is your second book that you have done on Jamaica. The first being Modern Blackness, Nationalism, Globalization, Politics and Culture in Jamaica. What 
Was it because of your um, upbringing in Jamaica that drew you to this? Um, partly, yes. I also, um, prior to graduate school, I was a professional dancer. And the company that I danced with in New York, um, we did these sort of community residencies where we would work with different grassroots uh, organizations in communities on a long-term basis using <laughs> dance and music as a tool for social change. And that was in addition to our um, performance schedule, our touring schedule. And I just became interested in, you know, we were working at a very local, like a very grassroots level, and I wanted to know, you know, what kind of impact can artists have, and particularly performing artists who are working from, like, a cultural position, you know, what kind of impact can they have on, you know, development and nation building and and things like that. And since uh, artists and dancers in particular were very involved in the anti-colonial cultural movement, cultural nationalist movement in Jamaica, it just made sense um, to go back and uh, and do sort of my Ph.D. research there, and that's what led to that first book. Yeah, I see. So tell us um, how you decided on this Jamaican experience to be um, your subject of study, the dancing? Uh, you mean the second book or the first book? Mm-hmm. Second. The second. Uh, well, I ha- actually had started working on a on a different project, on um, a project about um, the women who leave Jamaica and go to work in hotels in the U.S. Because a number of my friends had come up on that hotel workers program, which is like the farm work program, only it's um, you know obviously in the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, things started happening in the neighborhood where I used to live, and uh, a very close friend of mine was ultimately killed in what was developing as a as a gang war. And this is the friend of mine was somebody who wasn't involved. They were coming for his gun because he had a license for him. Um, and so after that, I just you know started looking into different aspects of violence in Jamaica more generally. I mean, violence is something that everybody lives with in Kingston, you know, and it sort of structures how you move in a day-to-day kind of way, but I had never really explicitly written about it, and and this thing that happened in the community and my friend's death um, sort of catalyzed the project uh, in general, and, you know, one thing led to another, and and that's uh, how we get the, that second, uh, the second book, yeah. I see. Were Jamaican scholars involved in the study? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I I work with scholars at the University of the West Indies and, uh, you know, read their work and have been in discussion with them, you know, for decades. So, uh, yeah, definitely, you know, it's a, it's a topic, obviously, that... Um, you know, everybody is interested in in one way or another, and a number of people who are in the social sciences at the University of the West Indies have have written about and tried to think about and really understand what that history is and what it has to do with politics and what it has to do with colonialism. And so, I mean, I think we're all part of a big community of scholars who who are looking at the same thing. Mm, I see. Well, why don't you give us a summary of... Um your major findings in the book well mm-hmm. i became um troubled i guess by the way that people talk about violence 
um, in Jamaica, and it's not limited to Jamaica. I mean, I think people talk about violence among black people anywhere in the same language, which is to say that we have a culture of violence. You know that somehow this is this is something that's related to a cultural defect, or you know it's something that we pass down from generation to generation, and um, you know that's how people talk about uh, poverty also. And in yeah. the U.S., that whole discourse about the culture of poverty, these are the African Americans, um, was which was you know arose in the 60s in in policy but has certainly continued since then and um has been critiqued very roundly but um somehow that kind of talk about stuff doesn't really go away and so i wanted to think about what would it mean to look at violence as something other than a cultural attribute you know to really investigate the history and think about older patterns of violence during colonialism and how those resonate today and the structural legacies of that history of colonialism and conquest and what that means for today's inequalities in Jamaica, uh, the development of political parties, all of that, you know, and try to argue that, in fact, violence is not a cultural condition, that it's the result of structural factors that can be tracked, you know, and that we need to take a much longer historical view to understand, like, what's really going on today. Right. Yeah, and, and because of that, are, are there any stereotypes of subcultures that cast a big footprint on our understanding of a wider culture? Well, sure. I mean, I think dancehall culture is stigmatized, certainly, just the same way hip-hop culture is here. Um, well, that... it, Go ahead. Um, you know, it's interesting you could say that, because, um, say, early hip-hop, in the seventies or in the early part of the eighties, it wasn't very. It, it was very positive. We talked about elevating black women, yeah. um, my African queen, and all that. But then suddenly, suburban white males, in particular, um, started to purchase it. And then, if you notice, it, uh, it, it took on something else. Yeah, it was yeah. very, very negative. Yeah, considering the fact that most of those white boys do not have any real. Association in the in the urban in the inner cities of Chicago, wherever, um, <laughs> they just have an image, and it's like, oh yeah, right. that, and I'm right. listening to rap music, you know. But one of your uh, solutions is reparations. That's a very touchy subject. You know, it's reparations among Black Americans <laughs> or even mm-hmm. Jamaicans. You know, um, please define the scope and context of this solution, and why mm-hmm. do you think? It has um, any viability. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you it's sound funny. cynical. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, I think what I advance in the book is to use reparations as a framework for understanding the place of the past and the present. Because that's what that's what reparations activists really do, right? Mm-hmm. They, they track um, certain historical divisions from uh you know an originary moment to the present in order to show what is the legacy of for example the slave trade or in other cases the use of you know Korean women as comfort women for Japanese soldiers or um you know the um killing of Jews during the Holocaust or you know they're able to sort of use that kind of structural historical framework to I, think I, through I, I see that, but would it be a, a monetary price? Because 
I remember when they did, you mentioned the Japanese. Well, Japanese Americans, they suffered too. They went into the concentration camp well, mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it, um, a couple of years ago, they were getting $20,000 a piece. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think, could you really put a price of what a human being suffer? Black people, especially, because they still suffer from. Mm-hmm. Um, Post traumatic slavery, and, and that's mm-hmm. why I was a cynic, uh, I sounded cynical because mm-hmm. blacks don't have an economic base in this mm-hmm. country. So mm-hmm. You can't go into any con- concentration of black people in the U.S. This is U.S. You mm-hmm. can find a Chinatown or a Koreatown, mm-hmm. even a Jew town. <laughs> I live mm-hmm. in Chicago, and they they actually had a place called Jew Town, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Where black people live, they don't own the economics of that community. So even if you were to give them money, it would go right back into the hands of um, well, basically Koreans and Arabs and, and all, mm-hmm. every other group is going to benefit from that mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. Black mm-hmm. people are going to get So why would mm-hmm. you say reparations would be a good idea if mm-hmm. you're going to be getting money and it's not even going to stay into the community because mm-hmm. they don't have an economic base? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm not really using the term actually in that in that way. I'm not talking about it literally. Obviously, activists who are interested in reparations for slavery are trying to think about it in terms of a monetary compensation, but that's not the way that I'm using using it um in the book. I I really am using it metaphorically to understand that process of thinking through, you know, the the how we get to today, you know how we get to A, to B from A, and what, you know, to to discount all of those people who want to talk about inequality as if it's a personal individual failing rather than a structural historical problem, you know. And so when I'm using the word reparations in the book, I'm really using it as a framework for thinking, not as a literal movement. However... In the last chapter of the book where I'm talking about um, Rastafari and state violence against Rastafari and one incident in particular in 1963, um, that, uh, the Coral, what's called the Coral Gardens incident, we did a film that came out of that yeah. chapter. And as the film has traveled a little bit, it's caught some attention and um, it caught the attention of Jamaica's public defender who is now finally pursuing a case and an investigation of what happened in 1963, because one has never been done, with the aim of developing a, an, an actual reparations case against the government of Jamaica. Now, in the community, then, it means they're trying to think about what that could mean for them. You know, is it that, like, they, they don't want to necessarily only think about it as this kind of, you know, individual monetary compensations, Right. But to instead imagine what kind of thing would benefit the development of the community as a totality, you know, in in into the future. And so they're trying to sort of imagine, I think, very creative and innovative ways of thinking about, you know, what reparations could be in that context, not just that everybody would get, you know, a thousand US or even twenty thousand US, but but actually that they could instead imagine something that would benefit the development of the community as a whole, whether okay. through policy or programs or, you know. So I think it, it doesn't have to mean 
um, you know, uh, like money uh, that's going to continually circulate back into the hands of, of, of power. I mean, the issue that you raise is very important also because, you know, usually when states pay reparations for something, they don't want to hear about it anymore. Right. You know, for them, the problem is finished. So no, I mean, mean like one, but it depends on who it is because um, mm-hmm. Jewish people, Germany will have to pay Israel for a very long time, mm-hmm. and you can they can say they don't want to hear about it, but their mantra is never forget, and mm-hmm. not only is it mm-hmm. never going to never forget it, you're, you're, we will remind you every year, and mm-hmm. they do remind everybody every mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. You know, but where where have you presented your findings, and what has been the response? Oh, uh, well, lots of places. Um, universities mostly. Uh, in terms of the film, we've shown it all over. Um, I'm going to be in Toronto this week coming. I was in Amsterdam a couple weeks ago. Uh, I went to the Trinidad and Tobago International Film Festival, Hollywood Black Film Festival, San Diego Black Film Festival. Uh, also showing it in little community spaces as well as sort of university classes. And um, it's been really interesting to see the different ways that people respond to it. Certainly in Jamaica, you know, a lot of Jamaicans didn't know about this incident in 1963. So, And, and in fact, a lot of younger Rasta don't know either. And, and so, who's controlling the media? Because that has a lot to say. I'm sorry, what did you say? Who controls the media and what what's being presented? Mm-hmm. Because they're not knowing about this. That's that's deliberate, isn't it? Yeah, know. it's not. Uh, you know, it doesn't fit nicely and neatly into the kind of right. you know story of Jamaican independence and nationalism. So, so yeah, it's um, largely been untold. Right, and there are other cultures with similar histories that have manifested different pathologies. What is the ingredient in the Jamaican sauce that is the major causative factor? That's the major cause of? Causative factors. In terms of, like, Mm. you know, what's happening in Jamaican culture that makes these kind of pathologies exist? You know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're not the only ones that are violent. Mm -hmm. We're not. Yeah. But you don't see that. What's making you Jamaica unique? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't think Jamaica is unique. I think, um, you know, there are a number of structural factors um, that lead to what the situation is today. You know, certainly uh, one of, you know, primary among them is colonialism and uh, the various ways uh, institutions were set in place by the colonial government um, that you know, mandated how land was distributed, um, how uh, how people had access to sort of economic development, political participation, all of those things you can sort of track through time, what it meant to become a crown colony in 1866, oh. you know, the whole sort of development, um, you know, dependent development of colonialism, but also, you know, the development of political nationalism in Jamaica took a, a particular path, and political violence accounts for most of what people see today, I think, as the sort of primary divisions among the poorer people in in Jamaica. Those political divisions have, 
you know, sort of factioned off as a result of the international drug trade. And, of course, Jamaica is a primary transshipment point for cocaine coming from South America and particularly Colombia. So there are a lot of factors that, um, you know, that are sort of global, structural uh, realities. Currently, Jamaica is going to have their 50th anniversary of independence. So we're, quote-unquote, free from colonialism. But Mm -hmm. I think there's neocolonialism on the island. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? Oh, definitely. I mean, you can't erase the past, you know. It it definitely lives on. I mean, certainly there's uh, all kind of colonial legacy. I mean, Prince Harry, I was just there last week and Prince Harry visited, and the amount of, uh, you know, excitement and kerfuffle around this um, 27-year-old young man's visit was just incredible, you know. But that's, you know, again, the legacy of colonialism. I think, you know, Portia Simpson, the new prime minister, is talking about moving toward Republican status. Now, that would then remove the queen as head of state and remove the Privy Council, the British Privy Council, as the highest court in the land, and it instead would direct Jamaica, you know, under the jurisdiction of the Caribbean Court of Justice. You know, symbolically, I think that would go far to change um, you know, kind of. I mean, there's no reason we still have to say "God save the Queen" in school every day. You know, yeah. so I think you know those are the those are the ways colonialism still lives on in the present. But of course, we also, you know, live in a global economic system that's dominated by you know the U.S. at this point and various up and coming, um, you know, powers like China and India and okay. Brazil and. So I think, you know, the different kinds of global inequality persist. A work like this does elicit critics. What has been the major counter-arguments, and what has been your response? Counter-arguments to? To, your, to, the, to the movie, your book, things of that nature. Oh, uh, well, I haven't heard any <laughs> Um, I suppose as people start reviewing it, you know, maybe I would, I would, uh, the book anyway, I would hear one or two things. In terms of the film, I mean, it's just, it's a documentary and it's documenting, uh, you know, the, the experiences of the elders who went through that persecution in 1963. So there's nothing really to, um, you know, criticize. You know, like I said earlier, how um, it's covered over because they don't want people to to think about or remember the past in such a negative way. So the fact that you're 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 reminding people of what happened, yeah, um, I thought people would have been like, ah, oh, don't talk about that, don't get people all worked up. Uh, no, not know. really. I mean, nobody. Nobody in Jamaica, and um, at least nobody that I've heard. I mean, I think in the community, in the Rastafari community, outside the Rastafari community, in sort of the group of artists and intellectuals I know in Kingston and, you know, more professionals, people who did not know are glad to know. And um, the response has been very positive. And certainly within the community, the, the response has been very positive. I I have heard that, what you're saying, but it was from 
somebody in Amsterdam actually who was Dutch and had lived in Jamaica for um a number of years working with a with a company there I think married to or living as married with a Jamaican woman who felt like, you know, why stir this up? You know, like um you know, Jamaica isn't like that anymore. It's not, you know, it's the same kind of people here who would want to say we're in a post-race moment. You know, look, we have a black president, so we're, we must be post-race. You know, is that kind of position, like, why are you still, you know, why are you still talking about this? Well, I think it's just um, wishful thinking or delusion of inclusion whenever people say that to me. But, you know, tell us a little bit about the movie and what what's the intent of using this medium get the word out oh well you know as i said it didn't start out as a movie it was you know part of the book and talking with some of the elders you know for the chapter that i was writing and it really was the it was the idea of one of the elders um because i had asked him if he would retrace his steps with me and tell the story again as you know we walked through the landscape and show me you know where he was chained to somebody where they were thrown into the back of a jeep you know where they were taken to jail and he said well yes i could i could do that but wouldn't it be better to do it on film and i was like well yeah <laughs> you know everything is better on film and my husband is a filmmaker so um, you know, it was out. kind of easy to imagine that it could be possible. And so there were three of us who really worked on it. And um, Junior, the other collaborator, um, Junior Wedderburn, uh, you know, went with me, did all the filming, tracked people down. John Jackson, my husband, edited it. And we worked very closely with uh, Junior Manning, who uh, is no longer alive, but at that point he was chairing the um, the group in Jamaica that does the annual commemoration of these events at Coral Gardens in 1963. So uh, he was running around with us and looking for people and sort of paving the way for us to be able to do this. And, you know, I think his agenda was to just get the word out, you know, so that people can know. Like what okay. happened? I think a lot of people are interested in Rastafari, and, and and they come to Rasta because of the music, you know. And especially people outside of Jamaica, they come to Rasta yeah. because they like what they hear, you know, of Bob Marley's lyrics and other people's lyrics. But um, they don't really know the history, and they don't know how persecuted, um, you know, that community has been sort of was right. in the early years, really up I through believe. the 80s and 90s, you know, and, and right. people don't know. So, right. you know. It's interesting that, that Rastafarians is now a selling point yeah. for the tourists. And exactly. And before it was a different, completely different image. Yeah. You know, um, so what is on the near horizon for you in regards to further research in Jamaica? Well, um, you know, we're going to run around with the film a little bit more. Um, but, you know, I'm still just interested in questions of the political, you know, what's going on with the 50th anniversary this year? How are people seeing, you know, what's possible, what the openings are, how they could change things for themselves, you know, and what's what's going on. So that's what I'm paying attention to. Yeah, I see. Well... To learn more about Jamaican Diaspora, visit Jamaican Diaspora. Um, to learn more about Chris Daly, 
His website is Let's Get Social and Mobile. And Deborah, if someone would like to see that movie, how mm-hmm. would they do that? Well, they could go to our website, which is uh, www.badfridaythemovie.com. And all the information is there, the information about the film, how to buy the film, how to get in touch with us, everything is there. And the trailer is on, the, on that website as well. So yeah, there's a trailer on the website. It, right? so, yeah. Okay. Well, we definitely appreciate you spending some time with us and with Progressive presents Mindflowness with Flow. Your aura brims with confidence. The Name Your Price tool has given you policy options based on your budget. A source of great power rises from within, like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. That can shoot dragons out of its eyes, riding on a tank. Get insurance based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Boar's Head invites you to enlighten your senses. Introducing Boar's Head Ichiban Teriyaki-style chicken. Inspired by Japanese master chefs, our signature teriyaki glaze is crafted with garlic, ginger, and a hint of brown sugar. Then paired with our tender, slow-roasted chicken breast for a flavor that's sweet, savory, remarkably bold. Boar's Head Ichiban Teriyaki-style chicken. The bold flavor of Japan. Now at the deli. Compromise elsewhere.